0: Live from Sydney, this is Yitzi Tovol building Jerusalem. My guest today is Eddie Boaz. Eddie is a child survivor of the Holocaust his book I'm not a victim I am a survivor tells the story of his journey uh, through how he and his family made it through the Holocaust um, he now travels the world telling his story Eddie it's a pleasure to have you on the show
1: thank you very much nice to be here
0: you've, you've told your story many times and it's it's become something of a a, um, a mission of yours to, to tell that story to get it out there what what is it about that that, that really drives you why is that
1: important for you? Oh, for, many, for many years, I put the Holocaust behind me. I was born in 1940 in the Netherlands, Holland. And um, I went through concentration camp, we'll come back to that in a minute, but my, the drive is that more and more people need to know about the Holocaust so it's not forgotten. And that includes the Jewish population in this world. It includes um, the Jewish population. Yeah, they, I have found uh, that Jewish generation, second generation, the first generation, their parents were either in a concentration camp or part of the Holocaust in Europe, or their grandparents. But then you get your second generation and the third generation, it just fades away, mm-hmm. and I've noticed. Um, I've had people say to me, have never Jewish people say to me, uh, uh, I've this is the first time I've met a Holocaust survivor.
0: Really? Yeah. And, where? And which kind? Like here? Or in yeah, there? I won't
1: mention names where, okay, but uh, <laughs> sure. no, but I mean, like in in, in Australia,
0: in Australia. When, Australia. I grew, when
1: I grew up. You know, yeah. I grew up in Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I came here when I was 14 years old. So my teenage years were in Australia. Um, so when my mother died. I felt I had an obligation. She died in two thousand and one to tell her story how she, my father, my brother, and I survived the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. My mother never talked about the Holocaust till she got older and went into a home, She went into the Montefiore home at Hunter's Hill, and then she started to talk a bit about the Holocaust. Uh, my wife, I had a heart bypass in two thousand and two, which is a year after my mother died, and uh, I wasn't a very good patient. Hmm. And my wife said, why aren't you going to do something? You had an interesting life, both during the war and the Holocaust years and when you came to Australia. And I could type because I used to sell all of very typewriters. Hmm. So I went in front of the computer and just started to type away. And I started to enjoy doing that. And start, then I started to realise I should know a lot more about it as well. And I did a lot of research, mainly about the Dutch mm-hmm. and the Dutch government and the Dutch bureaucracy. Um, we can go into that in a minute. So I went into that, and it took me 15 years to finish the book. Wow. I took a few years off in between because it became very difficult and emotional. So I had to have a break. I was working in those days. Oh, I had a business. Yeah. So... Uh, once the book was published, I had a story to tell in sequence.
0: Right.
1: And I I started telling it um, by contacting organizations, both Jewish and non-organizations, uh, for instance, the Catholic school system. I got an invite to speak at Monty Catholic Girls' School in North Sydney mm-hmm. to 2,000 students teachers, and guests. And that I found very, very rewarding. So I'm doing the speaking for self-satisfaction, uh, that, that I get to achieve something with this, and I, and I am. And then I got an invitation, uh, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington was selling my book, they put it in their, in their bookshop. And they were quite happy with that, and they asked me to do book signing. So I went to Washington and organised, at the same time organised as well to speak in New York and in Los Angeles. So I did a tour basically uh, for two weeks speaking to non-Jewish and Jewish uh, groups. This was just now? Just now, just now, uh, the end of August, early September.
0: Was that your first time speaking in America?
1: No, I... I, Spoke at different marketing conferences in America over over the years. I, I lived in New York for four years. Right, but uh, in, in terms of telling one of your my books, yeah, story, yeah, yeah, my book, yeah.
0: And do you find that their response was very different to Australian audiences?
1: Uh much more in the question types. Uh, uh, Australian people are a lot more reserved in asking uh, questions, where in in the US. Uh, they weren't afraid to ask questions, and the mm-hmm. questions went on and on. Uh, I, I had to the finish them off. Otherwise, I, I would have been there for hours. Right. And because um, it, it's and and you know the questions uh, in general, uh, but it all came, all st- they they are concerned by the anti semitism yeah. in America, and that that question came up quite a lot.
0: Sure, I I think we can we can talk about that in more detail. But I just just to get. The, the, the outline of the story um, across, you usually start um, from your childhood in the Netherlands and then move from there, right?
1: Yeah, like I was born in 1940 and the Germans invaded Holland in, on the 10th of May 1940. I was born on the 26th of January 1940, three months and 10 days, 15 days later, Germany invaded Holland. The Dutch uh, surrendered 5 days later so as a 3 months old baby i became part of the uh, the german or i was under under the german nazi control my parents uh, my parents both father and mother both families had been living in holland since for 200 years wow so they were very much into the dutch community they they were seen as they thought as dutch jews as it turns out, they were seen as Jews.
0: Right.
1: So, and as the Germans became more and more uh, aggressive towards, uh, and that's the kind way of saying it, towards uh, the Jewish population of Holland, the Dutch bureaucracy um, cooperated with the German Nazis. They handed over the census documents list the Germans Germans then knew where every Jew lived Mm. in Holland Um, the Dutch uh, there were good Dutch who did help the Jews quite a few of them uh, but there were many Dutch who actually did not help Jews including the the, the police force in Holland Um, so we my father had been in the Dutch army he fought the Germans at a place called the Geberberg which is in the middle of Holland, somewhere near a place called Utrecht. And um, when the, when they capitulated, the, the Dutch, uh, my father, came back to the Hague where we lived, um, and he very rarely left the apartment building we lived in. It's not a building; it was only three stories high. And uh, then the the Germans brought in rules that Jews couldn't could not go to. Um, Kids could not go to Jewish schools and then they couldn't go to any schools at all. Jews couldn't work for big companies or government organisations. Um, Jews were only allowed to go shopping on certain hours on certain days. Uh, they were not allowed to go on trams. They had to... Uh, as this as the years went on, uh, 1941, 42, 43. And then... In about, around about 1942, the Germans became serious about deporting the Jewish population of Holland to concentration camps, like Auschwitz, um, Mauthausen, uh, Sobibor, and Bergen-Belsen, where I was. Now, Jews were picked up off the streets, and Jews were picked up from their homes. And this started in a serious way in 1942. Uh, prior to that, 1941, they picked on certain Jewish groups, mainly young fellows, and uh, picked them up off the streets and things like that. So <clears throat> my parents uh, very rarely left the the apartment we lived on, lived in. Um, when my mother did go out, my brother, who was born in 1935, and by when the war started out. Started. He was five years old, but as years go on, uh, I was a baby, and as years go on, nineteen forty-three is when we were deported. Up to then, when my mother had to go out, she would take my brother walking and me in a pram to buy some whatever she could buy, and money was running out because they couldn't earn any money, mm. and all them as, as without they weren't rich people; uh, they were working people, both. Yes. Before the war, worked in the fruit wholesale business. My father had a fruit shop in Amsterdam uh, before he married my mother. Um, like, so as my mother's going to these shops, there was always, you know, the, the worry that she would get picked up. Mm-hmm. And that's why she would not leave the house all that often.
0: There, were, there was more of a danger of being picked up by Nazis while walking the streets than in,
1: in houses? No, both. Well, even, uh, initially, yes. Uh, what the Nazis did, they appointed Jewish councils in, in the two biggest cities, which are Amsterdam and The Hague. 78,000 Jews lived in Amsterdam, and 18,000 lived in The Hague, and another 16,000 were spread through throughout the whole of Holland. So they appointed a Jewish council for Amsterdam and they appointed the Jewish council for The Hague. And they put senior Jews in charge of that. And what the Germans are pretty smart of, they made these rules and regulations, but the people that told the Jewish population was the Jewish council. So the Germans initially had no direct context in, in, in announcing certain regulations and, and things you couldn't do. If it came through the Jewish council, The um, population felt a bit more at ease about it initially, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but of course as time went on and Jews were picked up off the streets or or taken from their homes, then the Jewish people population became hesitant to even believe whatever the Jewish council said. So it's the Jewish council's job as well to, to give the Germans a list of who was going to be next picked up. Right. And, of course, the population didn't notice at the time. Now, the, G- the Jewish council would would uh, come out and say on a certain day at a certain place every Jew has to report. Say in Amsterdam or the Hague. So the Jews, the ones who did, went, went there reported and never went back to their home again. They didn't notice. <coughs> But as time went on, people started to know a little bit more. Nobody knew about concentration gaps in, in, say, in the Netherlands Mm -hmm. um, in the early days. That all came later than the BBC radio, which you were not allowed to listen to, but secretly listened to a lot of people. So in my case, my parents um, stayed inside, uh, only went out, my mother only went out uh, when... Um, she wanted to do some shopping, get some food or, or whatever, which was very early. And we did this 1941, 42, 1943, it really became serious. And uh, my parents never reported to any of the places they were told to report to. But as time went on, my mother's family disappeared, my father's family disappeared. So they realized, our time was gonna come as well. Now, 1943, I was three years old, my brother was eight years old. So one day, my parents realized it's, it's not, can't be too much more, uh, longer before we would get picked up or, or picked up on the street or kicked out of our flat. So my mother, uh, it, this was sort of May, just after the winter, Wanted to go to the shop to get some clothing for myself and my brother, um, and uh, a cap actually to keep my hat warm, and my brother's had one. So, this particular day, she went outside with me and the pram and my brother uh, walking next to her, and she bumped into a policeman that she knew. And the policeman knew her because she used to drive a truck in, in The Hague and she was the only woman driving a truck in, in The Hague and the policeman, all the policemen knew her. So he just stopped her and said, how are you going Susie, where are you off to? And she said, I'm going to do some shopping at, at, at a shop called De Waal. He said, okay, and they chatted a bit and my mother went on. As we went to the shop, she bought what she had to buy as she came out, there's the policeman called Derek's standing outside and he said to her, Susie, don't look up just walk next to me, I hold by the arm, tell the children not to be noisy, just walk next to me. And as they're walking along the street, there is a, a, a block, of, uh, the roads were blocked by Dutch Nazis, and as they walked past, one of them shouted out to, to Derek, good catch there, Derek, a young woman with two children, and he just mumbled to her, don't look up, just keep walking. He t- took her back, took us back to our apartment, and stood outside the apartment all night and then the, 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 the danger was over. And uh, But the day came when even my parents had to report and it was at a synagogue in The Hague that they had to go to and they knew that they couldn't stay any longer uh, without something happening. So they went to the synagogue to report and there were not many Jews left in The Hague by then, maybe a couple of hundred or so. And they just about were all there apparently. And as they were queuing up, lining up, um, my mother heard a fella in front of her talk to another bloke saying, uh, I've got an Auschwitz, an Auschwitz is, a, is what German word for exemption certificate, and I've got it from the Jewish Council. And the, the fella said, Who did you speak to? And he said, that, Mr. Blick. And my mother's, my grandmother, my mother's side, made her name with Blick. So my, my mother said to my father, Philip, his name was Philip, Stay here, stay in line. I'm going to see Mr. Blick. And the Jewish council was just around the corner. So she grabbed my brother, me, and the Prem again to the Jewish council. When she got there, she said to, to the woman reception, uh, I'm here to see my uncle, Mr. Blick. What you know? And uh, the woman said, "Oh, he's busy." She said, "Well, just tell him I need to see him." So he came up And he said, "I'm your, I'm your niece." Uh, and uh, he said, "They didn't know who she was, and he, she didn't really know who he was." But my mother was a very determined person, which was proven right through the war, and never would take no for an answer. And she got an Auschwitz, Auschwitz. Um, for my father and and us. So she rushed back to the synagogue and my father's getting closer and she called them out and off they went back to the apartment without registering. And that gave us another uh, few months. On the 28th of September, uh, midnight between the 28th and 29th, a German soldier and a Dutch Nazi broke down our door, came up the steps, we were one flight up, Uh, shouted arouse, arouse, get out, get out my brother and I were sleeping in one room my mother and father in the other room my mother got up first told told to get dressed my father went out she went to get my brother and myself and as she came out she had a talcum powder uh, tube in her hand and threw it at the Dutch Nazi and he said to her he said to her, you just made the place dirty. And she said, the only dirty thing here is you. And he hit her with the, with the rifle. And the next thing we pushed down, down the stairs. And outside in the street is an is a army truck with some Jewish people in there. And we were pushed in there. The truck was surrounded by Dutch policemen and the neighbors were looking on. And we were taken to a railway station, which was only five minutes from where we lived, and pushed onto the trains to go to Westerbork, which is in northeast Holland, close to the German border, about a three hour train trip, something like in those days, which became a transit camp for Jews to the various concentration camps in Germany. Now, at the, the beginning of the war, there were 140,000 Jews living in Holland, of which about 20,000 were refugees from Poland and Germany from the years of the 1930s who had taken refuge, refuge in, in Holland. Uh, about 10,000 fled overseas before the war, had the money, up to 10,000 did. There were 107,000 Jews deported from Westerbork to German concentration camps. 102,000 were murdered, only 5,000 survived per head of population, it's the highest percentage of Jews murdered in any Western European country. We were the, part of that 5,000, my, my, my father, my mother, my brother and I, the four of us. So the Dutch cooperated pretty well with the Germans to get rid of all the Jews. We were in Westerbork from 29 September, to the 1st of February, when we were pushed onto a train to take us to Bergen-Belsen. When we were in Westerbork, my mother found out that her family had been sent to Auschwitz, all the family. She had uh, three sisters and two brothers and their wives and children. Her parents had died before the war. On my father's side, he had one sister and one brother and his mother, my grandmother. Uh, she, His father had passed away before the war. So they'd heard, their the family mother heard that her family had been sent to Auschwitz. Every Monday night, the Germans would have a list and announce a list of names of people to be deported the next day on the Tuesday. We were on a train, apparently, to go to Auschwitz. My mother's. Sorry, to go to Bergen-Belsen. When I said to my father, I don't want to go to Bergen-Belsen, I want to go to Auschwitz because that's where my family is. Go and see the Germans. So my father went to see the Germans. My father had a job in the, in the, in, in the Westerbork of a, a looking after the horses in a horse and cart and go to the farms outside and get food and bring them back to Westerbork. In the army, it was in the cavalry, so he dealt with horses. He went to see the Germans, and the Germans told him to get lost. And we ended up on a transport to Bergen belsen I'm pretty positive if we were sent to Auschwitz, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Because yeah. Auschwitz was the only camp that had the gas chambers.
0: When at this point you're you're about three or four years old?
1: Well, I'm three I was four years old when I arrived in Bergen belsen I was five days in my fourth birthday. A
0: lot of what you're you're telling me about a- the life in Holland, I assume you've learned from your mother in later years. Do you, do you have any memories yourself from these early times?
1: No, I don't. I, I, uh, I blocked everything out of my, my mind. And uh, uh, in later years in, in Australia, uh, in the 1990s I think it was, when something came up about with the Dutch government the Dutch government didn't believe me that I that, I, that blocked everything out of my mind. They sent me to a psychiatrist. Anybody who knows me, the last person I need is a psychiatrist. But I went to see the psychiatrist out at Randwick, and she asked me a question, gave me a test, and she wrote back to the Dutch government and said, yes, that, that's, I've just blocked this out of my mind. So I, I personally, no, do not remember anything, and I don't want to remember anything. At all? Or At all. From the entire war years? Yeah. Still, I don't remember anything till the day I arrived in Australia. Wow. I don't remember everything after 1954. So I I blocked it out of my mind. I tell my story of what my mother has told me, about my brother, my brother especially. He only died in 2017. He was older than me. He, he remembered everything just about. He had nightmares every night till the day he died. He died in December 2017 and I went to Holland for his funeral and the hospital doctor told me the night he died he had a nightmare about the war, yeah. So he helped a lot in getting the facts of the book and I did a lot of research about the book. Mm-hmm. So my the days in Holland, I don't remember. The days in Westerbork, I don't remember. The days in Bergen-Belsen, I don't remember. Um, I don't want to remember. Um, my attitude is that the Germans did what they did. Most of them were not held accountable for it, but I'm not going to let them ruin my life, present life.
0: Right. They 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 had the forties. No need to let them have. That's right. The yeah. century too. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's interesting what you say because it's, it's important for you on a... On, you you know you said that the last person I need is a psychiatrist. And it seems like just from from speaking with you on, on record and off record, you do seem like a very like, well-adjusted together guy. And it's interesting that there's this sort of paradox where it's sort of important um, for you not to remember those years because that would mess you up the way that it messed up so many... After the war, but at the same time, it's important for other people to hear this, so that, that we know what happened, that we remember it in the, you know, in the abstract.
1: I I believe, and I've been told by people who've heard me speak, which is now just yeah, plenty of places in Sydney and, and uh, in America as well. I I look at it objectively. I've been told and I know I do. Um, By that I mean, I tell it as a personal story, but not a personal story where I feel sorry for myself. Mm. Um, I don't feel sorry for myself. I feel sorry for my family that got murdered. Uh, My extended family, which was 64, that I ended up finding in research, all got murdered. Uh, my father, my mother, my brother and I were the only ones by one cousin in, in Amsterdam that survived from our families, both families. Yes. So, you know, uh, I never had any aunties or uncles at birthday parties or cousins or nephews or whatever, like not nephews but or, or cousins. Um, so all my life, it was my mother, my brother, my Come to, well, my father died in 1948. I'll just go back to Bergen Belsen. I yeah, think I'll come back sure. to that later. Um, so we um, we arrived in Bergen Bells on the first of February 1944, and there was a mean winter. Uh, we're just getting towards the end of that. We were put into a barrack. Uh, which held about, that's my mother, my brother, and myself, into a barrack which held about 400 people on, on bunks, three high. Uh, my father was in a men's barrack, uh, the same section as we were, but uh, separated by a wire fence. Burgum was made up of four major camps. One of them was Star Camp, where the Jews were held, the other ones had Russian uh, prisoner of wars. The other section had uh, political prisoners, uh, but the Jewish, the majority of Jewish people, were sent to the Star Camp, which initially could only should only have taken about six thousand Jews. Towards the end of the war, there was 30,000 Jews in in that mm-hmm. one section. Um, so, life in Bergen-Belsen uh, was a misery, obviously. Food was, uh, what you got was a, a soup uh, of, made of turnips and sometimes a bit of bread in it, sometimes a bit of potato in it. I was a growing boy. My brother was a growing boy. So there's no shops to buy clothing or, you know, shoes, couldn't get. So the only way that you could actually look after yourself is by stealing. So, my brother became very good at that. He was by right now eight years, uh, getting close to ten, nine years, getting close to ten years. So, he went around, if he saw that kid lying there, would steal the clothing um, and then bring it back to my mother, uh, and see if it fitted myself or my brother. My mother's job was to peel potatoes in the kitchen and also clean the toilets, they had door toilets, which was a terrible job obviously. My father's job was again a horse and cart. He was in charge of looking after the horses. He had to go around the camp picking up the dead bodies off the ground and out of the barracks, fill it up in his cart and then take it to a section of the camp into a hut. The advantage of that was for us that the Germans fed horses better than they did the Jews. So my father was able to steal food for us, potatoes and carrots. He and my brother worked out a way that my brother would follow my father around the camp. And then my father would stop somewhere with the horses and started feeding the horses, but at the same time he would drop a potato or a carrot and my brother would, being on his hands and knees, picking it up, put it in his pocket, hoping the Germans uh, wouldn't see him. And uh, my father spoke to the horses in Dutch, but he actually spoke to my brother. So the Germans, speak German, so they didn't understand Dutch, so my father would say, thanks to my brother, you know, go whatever, and that's where I want, to drop something. And he then would bring it back to my mother, who would use it as, as a currency to buy clothing from people whose children had died? So that's how we we got more food than anybody else because of that, and that's how sometimes we were kept. I was kept warm. Um, I, I to this day, my feet are the worst part of my body. They they are always cold, and obviously, my mother told me a story that I was complaining that my feet were always cold because I had no shoes, even in the winter. Okay. And she just told me to pee on my feet and keep it warm for a little while. So, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to imagine how one can survive all that, and especially children, and not many children did survive uh, concentration camps. Um, my parents were very strong, uh, my mother, would even in Birkham belsen she would argue with the Germans. Um, one of, of them... was an argument about my brother who, who was caught stealing something and my mother berated the German. And in the end, the German got fed up with her and, and hit her in the head with the butt of a rifle. And both my, my brother and my mother ran away and the Germans luckily didn't shoot. So she she really... And she was only, in those days, uh, 1940, she was only 30-odd years old. You know? Um So she dressed, she said, like an old woman, which she wasn't, um, just always uh, had a dirty face and scars over her head and things like that, you know, whatever they could find. So as time went on, the Germans got more unreliable uh, by the day as to what they were doing with the Jews in Bergen-Belsen. And they didn't know what to do with them because the, now, now you're getting to the stage where the Allies were starting to close in on Germany. In the, in the East where the Americans and the Russians. In the West, where Bergen-Belsen was, um, where the Canadians and the British. So the British... Got close to Bergen-Belsen and surrounded Bergen-Belsen. The Germans got wind of the fact that the British were coming. They wanted to get rid of all the Jews out of Bergen-Belsen. So they put all the Jews on three trains towards the, towards the east and to a place called concentration Sobibor, which was in what used to be Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. The first train had about 2,000 Hungarians and Dutch Jews in it. The second train had mainly Hungarians. The third train had mainly Dutch. We were on the third train. There were 2,400 mainly Dutch Jews on that These three trains left on the 6th of April to the 10th of April, 1945. Uh, We had been in Bergen-Belsen for 15 months by then. We were on the third train and the first train mainly had Hungarians on them. The second train had a mixture of Hungarians and Dutch on them and the third train had mainly Dutch, about 2,400. The first train was liberated by the Americans, in the middle of Germany, on its way to Czech Czech border. The second train made it to Sobibor, and nobody knows what happened to the inmates on that. The third train was liberated by the Russians, in a place called Trobitz. The third train, the train we were on, became known as the Lost Train. We were on the train for 14 days, with no food, no, no, no water, no nothing. About 500 people died on that train in that in the two week period. The train zigzagged, went north, went east, went back west. The Germans had no idea what to do with the train. And of course, by now, the Allies were bombing the, the railway tracks for German soldiers to transport. The train of the Berlin, and. It was in Berlin for two days, when the order came forward to go to Poland, so the train went to the south and to the east, and at a place called Trobitz, the Russians surrounded the train and liberated the two and a half thousand Jews on board. The only way to eat on that 14 trip, to find food, was when the train stopped jump off and go to the farms to see if you could steal some food, potatoes mainly. And my mother did that. My father wasn't well enough to do that. And one time she jumped off with another woman and when she came back to where the train was, the train was gone. So they walked along the tracks for a while and saw a train in the distance and it happened to be the Hungarian train, the second train, which actually made it to Soberga. They jumped on that. Sometime later, that train got stopped again, but that pulled up next to another train, which happens to be the third train. Wow. So they, they jumped off and lucky they did because they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't have survived none of us. So they got back onto our train.
0: It, let me understand this, that the, the train would stop at various parts of the countryside and Jews would get off and go steal food from farms and then go back to the train. Why would they go back to the train?
1: Well, because the other the family, my father, my, my, uh, my, uh, my brother and I were on the train. Right. So my mother wasn't going to leave us. Right.
0: But for, for, I mean, for the rest of the people? It'd be the
1: same sort of thing.
0: You know, not everybody
1: could have jumped off, you know, That'd be, be probably one from each family. Maybe some didn't, you know. I, was, I suppose it comes back to how courageous you yeah. were and, and things like that, you know. Um, so that's how we fed ourselves on the two weeks on the train, uh, uh, you know. Um, The Russians took the Jews to Trobitz, put the Jews from the train into homes, kicked some Germans out of their homes to put Jews in there. And some were put into schools, which we were put into schools. So we were just sleeping on the floor uh, on these schools. Um, That was on the 23rd of April. 1945. Nobody knew about this train. The train just disappeared, the people on it disappeared. The Russians looked after the Jewish people. My mother, to the day she died, spoke very highly of the Russians. You know, how they looked after the Jews. And everybody's been in Trobats, every Jew that I've met since. tells the same story. Really? Yeah. And the Russians couldn't feed us, but they just told everybody to go and steal food from wherever you can. You know, and, uh, but they looked after the security of, of, the, of the Jewish population uh, in, in Trobitz. The 2000, the, there were about 2000 left now. So, the, uh, uh, we were then sent to a place called Reza because I was getting sick and my mother was getting sick and the Russians, there was a, a disease called typhus Many, many people in Bergen-Belsen, the majority died of typhus, starvation and typhus. Thousands died in Bergen-Belsen of of starvation and typhus. And typhus was right on the train. Lots of people died of starvation. Of the 400, half of them, were typhus and half of them, with starvation. Now, the Russians were dying of typhus because they got infected by it.
0: From the Jews?
1: From the Jewish population. Uh, so they decided to send all the people that were sick to a place called Riza away from Trobitz and away from the Russians. Um, so we we ended up in Riza. Um, my father and my mother decided they needed to make their way back to Holland. Uh, they hitched a ride with a Russian soldier to the to the river Alba, which was the... Diff- the the, the border between the American troops and the Russian troops. The American troops had four Gypsies. They wanted to swap for four. Uh, they swapped for, for us for Dutch Jews, so we went across to the American side. They swapped. Yeah, the, the Gypsies. They let the Gypsies Gypsies go across to the to the other side, to where the Russians were, and uh, let us go across. That's so bizarre. What? Hmm? Why? why? Like,
0: there, there, there had to be some maintenance of parity, the same numbers?
1: Yeah, because, well, they, the Russians didn't want everybody to come to their side, and the Americans didn't want everybody to come to their side. Right. So that balanced it out for whatever reason. Fair. You know. Uh, there was a bridge there, of course, uh, which was harder than on one side by the Americans on the other side. So my brother, uh, so we ended up in Leipzig, which was on the other side mm-hmm. of the Elbe River, and we, we were again in a school, schoolyard the school where we slept. Um, the, uh, and I was getting sick, pretty sick, and my brother was going around the streets begging for food and stealing food again. And um, he, uh, he came across an English soldier, or the English soldier came across him. A chap called Captain Douglas, actually. My brother doesn't speak English, of course. And, uh, but somehow i managed to communicate with him to come to my mother and my father and where I were. And they he put us into the hospital, the army field hospital, and uh, together with the Americans, they made us better. Mm. And on the thirteenth of June, we were put on the train to Holland. Now this is this is we got on the train on the on the eighth of April, so we're talking you know uh, nearly two months later that we had been in Trobitz, you know, and nobody knew where we were nobody knew it was still alive till the Americans found us and, 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 and told it
0: when you say nobody knew well like
1: the Dutch government or, or, or the Dutch uh, the, the allies right you know uh, but by then the war was finished right you know when this was which year hmm? This was which year? 45 1945 it's June
0: 1945 yeah the the war oh, finished okay. in May right, right. well I'm the, Europe, the European side of it, at least, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, yeah, yeah. of course, yeah.
1: So so um, uh, we, we ended up in Holland. We got back there on the 13th of June. We were processed through the Red Cross. We were put on a bus back to The Hague. My parents, we were not far from where we used to live before the war, our house or our home, our flat. My parents walked back to our flat with, with my brother and myself. Uh, I was five years old now. My brother was 10 years old. I was nearly 10. And uh, knocked on the door and the people wouldn't let him in. Told them to get lost because they live there now with all our furniture, all our belongings and everything.
0: Crazy.
1: So they went to the police. We told them to get lost. They went to the, to the city council. told them to get lost. So they, they found a convent Uh, near there where we slept for a while my father my father then went around looking for some relatives he found a non-Jewish relative who helped us put us up Uh, a couple of months later we were put into a a bomb a flat which was totally in in, no windows no nothing Uh, because of the bombs they started to make a life for themselves again all over again with nothing no money no clothing no nothing my family. Mm. Crazy. So, you know, um, so we we uh, made a life for ourselves, but unfortunately my father, my sister, luckily the only good news they had, the only decent thing that happened was my sister was born in 1947, but unfortunately my father died in August 1948. The Dutch were not helpful at all in trying to assist in finding assets or or anything at all, you know. And uh, so you just have to work, look after yourself.
0: Mm.
1: Now, they did, my mother did, my mother got a stall in a marketplace to sell dress material and had made a living that way. I went to school, my sister was too young to go to school, my brother went to school, but my mother decided that Europe was not the place for her and she took the three of us to Australia with no money, uh, a few hundred pounds, uh, in those days, Australia pounds.
0: Did you ever ask her why she chose Australia?
1: Yeah, 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 because um, the only relative that they could find was the sister of my grandmother, on my father's side. Right, and she lived here. And she lived here, Dutch, of course. You know they emigrated before the war, so that's why they came. To, to, she came to Australia, and they put us up for a couple of weeks. Um, my brother found a, a, a flat in Coogee, Brook Street, Coogee, and uh, that's where I lived from 1954 to 1964. I grew up there. A teenager. I met made friends in Kuji. I'm still friends with three or four of them, see each other quite often. Um, I went to school at Maruba Junction, South Sydney Junior Technical School, where I was supposed to learn uh, metalwork and woodwork. I can still count hammer and, and nail into a wall. I left school at 15. And this this period, you, you your
0: memory kicks in. You, yeah. you actually remember.
1: I remember everything from that.
0: From that point on. Yeah. What What were the early years like for
1: you? I'm fantastic.
0: Oh yeah. After what I left. Yeah. fair. Do you remember feeling at the time? Wow, this is great. Oh yeah, I I, I, I,
1: I remember sailing in the Sydney Harbour. Really. At the bridge and the AMP building, which is the tallest building in Sydney, right at the harbour front there. That's where your memories start. Yeah, and I could see what's called the AWA building, where there was a big tower, tower on top. Wow! And that was the tallest point in Sydney, and that's where I ended up working in Two CH in that building. Wow! Uh, so you know that was the area of Two CH. That's crazy. Um, school was great. Uh, it was a boys' school. Uh, I, I Australian. I, I couldn't speak any English. You were, you were fourteen at this point. I was fourteen? Yeah. I was. I turned fourteen on the boat. So, you know, they, they, uh, yeah. from then on, life was what you made of it. Uh, we had no money, my mother worked. When she went, within a week of moving into the flat with no furniture, no nothing, mm. uh, she got a job as a cleaning lady at the Coochie Bay Hotel just down the road. My sister went to Coochie Public School, I went to South Sydney, Maruba Junction. I worked after school. I sold newspapers off the tramps on the weekend to help my mother, uh, who was a widow. My brother got into trouble with the police a lot because of the stealing business. You know, he thought that was normal because I mean, he'd been told all his life to do it. Right. So my mother decided the best thing for my brother is to go back to Holland and live because she couldn't cope with it anymore that the police calling all the time. And
0: how old was he at the time? He must have
1: been oh, Well, he, he was, uh, what are we talking about, 1955? He, he, he was uh, 20-odd years old. You yeah. Know. So he went back to Holland, got into trouble there a lot with the police, ended up in jail for a few months, and and, and the show, how uh, unsympathetic, unsympathetic the Dutch were, he was sent to a jail for three or four months, and the cell he was put in was, was to the worst German Nazi in Holland oh. who had sent all the Jews from Amsterdam to the concentration camp. Which so
0: they were next door? Or right they next, door? next door. Wow. And
1: there were three Germans there. He had, those three were right next to him. Did, did he ever tell you about what that was like? Yeah, yeah, yeah I wrote about it in my book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, you know, they, they didn't care. They were in jail, but they they all got released before their their time was up. But he, but the the, the senior, um, I tell the story in my book a bit more detail. But the senior, um, whatever his name was, uh, German Nazi, told the most junior German Nazi, to clean my brother's cell every day, and they have, you know, they my brother just you know you, when you're in a cell he tells me you can't ignore people right and the Germans uh, he spoke to the Germans and, and uh, yeah the the junior the, uh, the German had to look after the two senior Germans and my brother
0: that's that's wild yeah Did, was there a a sense like was there anything that came out of those conversations of note
1: in what way
0: well, I mean, as you say, you're in cells. You can't ignore. You can't ignore each other. So you, you sort of have to have day-to-day practical conversation.
1: Yeah. Did did the
0: conversations go beyond that at all?
1: No, he said it didn't come up at all, and and he didn't know, of course, what happened in, in detail in those days. You know. Mm. So so no, um, but I made a life for myself. Uh, I worked at 2CH radio station for six years as a panel operator um, and technician later on. I worked as a typewriter salesman, uh, made commission, did a write, um, got a job uh, selling cash registers, uh, got married, uh, had two children, two sons who today are 50 and 48, wow. and, and today I have four grandchildren. Uh my present wife looks after me and uh, I just worked hard and, and uh, did well, uh, got to work for a big company in Sydney who um, were, a good, were an American company, a uh, pharmaceutical market research company. I was managing director or started of a sales manager, became managing director of the local a company subsidiary and uh, met the boss of the company, was a chap called Robert Louis-Dreyfus, and he was a famous Frenchman, uh, well-to-do rich Frenchman. He and I got on well, he he asked me if I wanted to work, I was just got divorced in those days, he asked me if I wanted to work in America, Uh, I had no money, Uh, the bank wouldn't loan me, after my divorce wouldn't loan me any money to buy an apartment. So I asked him if the company would loan me money and the company loaned me money Hmm. to buy an apartment here in Sydney. And I went to live in America for four years uh, and uh, became president of the direct marketing division worldwide, did a lot of traveling, earned good money, saved enough money to set me up for the rest of my life. Came back to Australia in 1994 and haven't looked back since. Fantastic.
0: Hmm. I've I've heard this phrase um, uh, before, uh, the best revenge, is a life well lived. Does that, does that ring true for you?
1: Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. This is what I'm saying about the, the, the Germans. I wasn't going to let them. I actually had a, the boss in between the big boss because I, you know, I did a lot of jobs for him on the side that yep. nobody else in the company knew. Like he sent me to all sorts of places, Brazil, India, to, because things were happening there yeah, that he wanted me to sort out for him. Mm-hmm. and that was also part of my job but that was an unofficial part of my job mm-hmm. but I got well rewarded for all that and I um, I I I have uh, a theory in life and I've always lived my life this way I don't care what happened yesterday I can't do much about it anymore tomorrow I don't know but today I can control mm-hmm. so I live for today and I enjoy today I'll make sure I do and tomorrow, who knows, tomorrow I'm going to play golf, but will I have a good round or a bad round? I don't know. Yesterday, nothing I can do about the past. So, you know, it's how I've lived my life, that's how I've run my businesses and it's served me well. Yeah. Uh, Life in Australia has been good. It's it's a worry at the moment uh, about anti-Semitism.
0: This is something we had a bit of Chat about off mm. the mic before the show. You, you what's what's your um,
1: perspective on that? I mean, as someone who is so close to the issue. Well, if 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 you really think about it, the Holocaust started this way with anti-Semitism. Jews were blamed for everything. There was no Israel in those days, of course. Um, and the same sort of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is happening today. And it's grown over the last... The number of incidents have doubled in certain countries. I read somewhere in Argentina, it has doubled in, in two years. Wow. In England, it's risen. In America, in America questions at, at the, the, the presentations of this in the Q&A, there was always a question about anti-Semitism. And unless the Jewish population becomes aware of it, and not tries, tries to dismiss it um, it will get worse and governments need to stick up there's only 15 million Jews in the world the, the population of the world is 6 billion something Yeah. so they represent 0.002% of the world so why anti-Semitism
0: yeah well, what's um, interesting to me is something that uh I, I was I was listening to a podcast with Eric Weinstein, an American mathematician, and he was talking about um, that there's there's an opportunity that exists that's, that's running out for a um, greater shot at reconciliation than what we've we've had so far. He says that I think it's specifically with with regards to German society that, that but it's similar to what you were saying how your your, your family lived among the Dutch for 200 years and thought they were Dutch and, and he said that for a, like there was a, a similar sort of partnership in Germany between um, Jews who lived in Germany and native Germans and it was a sort of creative partnership it was a cultural partnership and a scientific partnership and that went sort of really really well until suddenly it really really didn't um, and that's and now that's been obviously like massively sullied by the horrors of the Holocaust um, what, where that sort of left us is, is that the people who came out of the Holocaust have, you know, obviously especially people who are older when when it happened were, were profoundly traumatized by that. Often their kids were as well. Um, and then the German population is left sort of wringing its hands with a sort of um, a sort of profound guilt that it feels powerless to do anything about it, and. There, there is an opportunity. As, as far as I understand Weinstein, there's an opportunity that's like radically running out to come to sort some sort of, um, I, I, don't know if healing is the right word, reconciliation, some, some sort of conversation that could happen that could attempt to what rescue the, the past somewhat, uh, or to try and at least deal with a whole lot of the trauma that's that's arisen. Um, and he thinks that, that that's like a really important thing to, to be done while it's still while there's still time. Does, it, does any of this ring true to you? No. No. Have, have, have you, let me ask you this, have you had any
1: conversations with Germans in the past few years? I am, uh, my, my, uh, back when I worked for this American company called IMS and Robert Louis-Dreyfus was the president, my immediate boss was a German. Hmm. he was he was uh, the president of IMS division that I belonged to and um, he and I got on famously he and I I had to go and see him in Germany (coughs) well prior to that I I I would uh, would not go to Germany I said again I said to myself I'm not going to let the past ruin our life today right so I went to see him in Germany and I didn't stay long. I just had to do my meetings and, and see him and what I had to see him about. Maybe one day, one night, maybe two nights at the most. Um, we had dinner together. And and, and he told me uh, how his father died a soldier in the German army. Wow. Right? And, and, but he wasn't a Nazi. You know? And I believed him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not every German was a Nazi, you know? Right. And he... After I left the company, I retired. I've still been in touch with him. I've seen him in, in Germany actually since I retired. Uh, and uh, you know, we get on famously. I, I wanted some tickets for the for the World Cup when it was in Germany. The soccer, he got me some tickets because he was involved in it. So you know, no, I, I don't have any problems with Germans today. And, and do I have problems with Germans from that generation like my generation? No, I don't. I'm saying i definitely never Nazis so I don't see everybody as a Nazi every German is a Nazi sure, sure. You
0: know. Do you, but I feel like there's an issue with um, sort of this is sort of tricky to say there's an issue with I think like Germans even ones who like weren't alive then Germans themselves feeling like all Germans are Nazis or feeling like the guilt of their ancestors you know comes down to them
1: I, I, I look I I, I, I find that hard to believe, the mm-hmm. same as I find, I made a point of this somewhere in one of the things I've interviewed and had, okay, first, second, third, fourth, fifth generation Jews whose grandparents or parents were murdered in the Holocaust. I can understand a first generation being traumatized by it. I can understand a little bit a second generation, but I cannot for the life of me understand how a third, fourth, fifth generation can be traumatized by that. Now, in, in, in Holland, or I think maybe another place where I can only talk about Holland, When the Dutch brought in compensation systems, which were absolutely useless, if you were a second generation, you could apply for that. Mm. Why? You had a chance to make a life for yourself. First generation, I can understand a bit. But if you rely on something that happened in the Holocaust as a second generation, then to me, that's wrong. It's, it's not it's not meant for that and, and there's no reason why you should be suffering if your great grandparents were murdered by the two Nazis That's either something wrong with the way you're brought up or there's something wrong with yourself that you don't really want to work Right. that's well, the way I look at it fair enough
0: on the subject of the what you call the uselessness of Dutch compensation, um, you've been involved in lobbying the Dutch government for a better response, um, specifically because of the complicit nature of the Dutch bureaucracy during the war.
1: It's it's after the war. After the war. It's it's the Dutch government um, didn't bring in a compensation system to to nineteen seventy five, seventy four, which is which is what. 30 years after the war, and then it was, I've never had one penny compensation from the Dutch. Really? Yeah. Because I took a job, and I and I was earning money. And therefore you weren't eligible. And that's why I wasn't eligible to, just because I took a job and earned it, didn't mean that I didn't suffer during the war. Sure. So the Dutch has, have never given me anything. Um, the Dutch brought in, uh, As late as now, Dutch railways, who transported all these Jews to the, to Westerbork and then to the German border, to be be shipped to the German concentration camp. At the German border, the Dutch railway workers were replaced by German railway workers. 2018, the Dutch railways, a, a government bureaucracy, Finally admitted their wrongdoing and brought in a compensation system to, to to for surviving Jews and first generation only could could apply. Wow. 2018. Yeah. And and this is last year. And and first generation only can apply wow yeah. survivors, and there's only 500, right. 600 survivors left in Holland. Right. So then if you were the child of a uh, someone that had been transferred, you could apply. You could, you could apply, mm-hmm. but not a second or third. And I agree with that. I wrote him a letter actually and told him to right. Now, I'm entitled to that. Right. But as far as the pension system went, when my mother, when I needed it, between the years 1945 and 1975, when I absolutely
0: had
1: no money. Right. You know, I had a job. I needed, I needed money. I didn't leave school because I wanted to leave school, because I needed to leave school. Right. That's 15. So, you know, so the Dutch put so many obstacles in their way, in my way, that it wasn't worth it all. What would you like to see from the Dutch? An apology. The Dutch have never apologised. Really? Yeah. Only Western Europe, European country that hasn't. Why do you think that is? Uh... The Dutch are the Dutch. The Dutch are the Dutch. For, for someone who doesn't understand the Dutch, can you explain that a bit more? Uh, they believe, I think, I think, look, in my book there's a letter I wrote to the then Prime Minister in Holland in 2009. He replied to me. Didn't apologise, but a very nice letter. And basically what he said, we could have done better. We should have done better. No apologies. That's it. We could have done better. We should have done better. I managed to get a letter to the current Dutch Prime Minister about two years ago. I, I met somebody who was very friendly with him. I sent him the same letter but more or less I sent the, the, the Prime Minister in 2009. He didn't write back to me but he got one of his underlings to write to me saying exactly the same thing. We could have, we should have done better. But no apology. Now, I believe they owe me an apology and I, till the day I die i would be working at that. That's my goal in life now. I've, I don't need anything else, I don't need the money, I, today I don't need the Dutch money anymore. You know, I did, as I said, back in 1945, 1975, mm. but today it's, it's the principle, why shouldn't they apologize?
0: You know. I
1: mean, do you know why they, they haven't? I think they, they are afraid for the consequences. I think. What uh, consequences? Su- being sued, maybe. Yeah. You know, I, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that, but that that's the only thing I can think of. Fair. Yeah. Uh, that that they are afraid of the consequences. You 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 know, as I said, there's only four hundred, or only about five hundred. Holocaust survivors, Dutch Holocaust survivors left. You know, so it doesn't take much to apologize. to the 500. Doesn't take much. No. Good luck with that. Thank you. And
0: and good luck with all your work. I hope that your your travelling and your talking and your book help to spread that um, that awareness and that I guess vigilance. And uh, may we may we never suffer like that again.
1: I hope so. I. I but I, I. I'm afraid. The worldwide Jewish population is too complacent about it.
0: You think we're too complacent today? <clears throat> Absolutely. Do you think the Holocaust could happen again or something like it?
1: It can happen again. Absolutely. And it probably will happen again. Not in my lifetime. Probably not in your lifetime. But it's... It, 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 all it needs with anti-Semitism or anything really is someone like a Hitler who can talk not and speak right. and hold an audience that's all it needs in, in any dictatorship that they're all good orators they can all talk well they can hold a crowd they can convince a crowd that's all Hitler did
0: what What can we do to prepare
1: I think governments and, and Jewish leaders should speak out more speak out more do your mind
0: that would forestall it pre- prevent it
1: prevent it I hope you know, the, the question they need to ask, why? So, yeah, people the people who are and and asthmatic who do these swastikas and all this, they, they probably never even met at you. They wouldn't even know with you. But they draw these swastikas, why? Because they see somebody else do it, they read something or heard somebody speak and the hearing somebody speak is the biggest impact. Not reading, not seeing, but hearing somebody speak. Now the governments give lip service to, to uh, even here in Sydney, I don't mean federal governments necessarily, but even local councils. You look at the swastikas and Bondi, uh, you know, recently, over the last years, on, on the wall there at the, at the beach, It was a little bit in the paper, but nobody struck out against it. In in, in a solid manner. Australia is fortunate. We we don't really have that much uh, anti-Semitism here. You know, to me, the ones who do it are basically idiots who don't know what they're doing. In Europe, it's a bit different. What's it like
0: in Europe?
1: It's more personal. It's, It's really meant against the Jews. I don't think here in Australia, except again for the few idiots around, but those people who do swastika things and and say things that they, they don't know what they're saying. But somebody must have gone to it to do it. So yeah, do I believe these things can happen again? The answer is yes. It's rough. I said I only live for today Thanks very much
0: Pleasure to have you on Thank you God bless you Thank you A good year
1: Thank you